Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I'm one of your hosts, Phil Iscove. And I am your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your regular host, a femme fatale. That's a bad joke, but you know what? <laughs> I mean, We're going listen, with... Listen, it's fine. I mean, I don't know that Consenting Adults has a femme fatale to speak of, but... Kevin Spacey's the femme fatale. <laughs> <of that laughs> yeah, fair, fair point. Uh, I mean, honestly, today. like, yeah. it's, like, sort of confused as to whether or not Rebecca Miller, like, knows what she's doing in that movie, so... <laughs> yeah, that's Rebecca Miller. I honestly, until you said that, I did not... Wow. Jeez, yeah. that kind of blew my mind. For the longest time, for the first couple shots i thought it was uh, patricia wedding because it kind of looked like her and then i was like it's not and that all makes sense yes but i agree rebecca miller no idea what she's doing in this movie but <laughs> with us today is karina longworth of the you must remember this podcast she's the best we're so thankful to have you here to talk with us about your oeuvre right now which is <laughs> erotic 90s um we're talking about two films today but i wanted to kind of ask you up top Karina. i know you did erotic 80s so obviously erotic 90s comes after that but i wanted to kind of get your thoughts macro as to why you've decided to dive into the erotic genre um you know i think like a lot of people um you know in the early sort of months of 2020 when everything was shut down i kind of revisited some movies that i hadn't seen in a while and i found myself really drawn to movies like black widow and um body heat um and uh just kind of like trying to figure out like what was happening for a while in Hollywood where there seemed to be all these sort of sexual thrillers but also to you know going beyond that um there were movies that had a lot of sex in them that weren't 
thrillers. It, mm-hmm. it was just so much more normal to have movies that had a lot of sex in them. Like Bull Durham is a baseball movie, but it's kind of more of a sex movie than a baseball movie. Um, and so I just start, kind of started thinking, like, what was the beginning of this and what was the end of this? And how like how did this sort of climate get created and why does it not exist anymore? Um, and that, you know, one thing led to another, as it does when you're talking about sex. And uh, I ended up doing erotic 80s and now erotic 90s. I mean, I will say we're, you know, we're going to talk about, I would argue, I imagine you feel the same way, kind of the, the peak of this mountain in terms of, of certainly uh, monetary success in terms of basic instinct and it being kind of this, I knew it was successful. I didn't know how successful it was. Um, it's a, it's the third highest grossing film of 1992. Like that is, that is no small feat. Um, you know, $352 million in 1992 is, uh, I mean, it's a lot of money then it's a lot of money now, but it's even more money now. Um, and it, and it's understandable to me how, or why there were so many films after it sort of chasing that money, if you will, for lack of a better way of putting it, but the sort of the incline that you talk about in the eighties, sort of that ramp up to it is I would argue maybe more interesting than the downfall, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk in the podcast season about how, you know, nobody made millions of dollars trying to rip off basic instinct um, because the few people who tried like the Madonna movie body of evidence, um, it just didn't work. And it became clear like pretty quickly that that formula of basic instinct was a once in a lifetime thing and it was unreplicable. Whereas fatal attraction, which was pretty much just as big of a hit in 1987, that turned out to be a formula that was more replicable. Um, And so I, you know, one of the movies we're talking about today, consenting adults, I think of that as being the tail. Sorry, I just hit my microphone. gesticulating wildly about consenting adults as you want as want to do it brings but, out the passion in you understandably. yeah, yeah. totally <laughs> but um uh consenting adults is kind of the tail end of this wave of movies that we're trying to do um fatal attraction in the sense of like fatal attraction is about like the mistress from hell mm-hmm. these all these other movies were about the blank from hell and so consenting adults is about the neighbors from hell totally um but it's you get by the time you get there, it's even after Basic Instinct, and like the genre is like totally dying and has kind of become baroque and um, not so successful anymore. No, for sure. I mean, we've covered two of of these films that you're sort of referring to thus far. We did Single White Female, which is the roommate from Hell, uh, and then we did fin- uh, Final Analysis, which I guess is just the patient from Hell. I'm I'm not really sure. Like that's yeah. kind of Hitchcockian and doing a bunch of stuff. But um, and we still obviously have others. We have Hand That Rocks a Cradle, which is, you know, the babysitter from hell. Like it's it's a lot of this stuff that that is I mean, it is fun. I don't mean to suggest that they are entertaining to watch to some degree. And these movies in varying degrees were successful. I mean, when Emily and I talked about Final Analysis and Single White Female, both of those films, you know, budget to to box office. These weren't, you know, they weren't failures. Consenting adults, less so, and we'll talk about that. But yeah, <laughs> nobody wanted to see adults consent. It's just not what people wanted. I mean, in who does? <laughs> but it, it's it is it is a fa- obviously it's a fascinating. Uh, your podcasts are amazing, so people should go and listen to those. Obviously, um, it is a really interesting. I mean, there's a whole conversation going on online in terms of the sexlessness of movies today i mean it's one thing to not have basic instincts in movie theaters it's another to basically have eradicated sex from from movies uh 
which is uh, disappointing to say the least. But yeah, I mean, I did an episode about Pretty Woman pretty early mm-hmm. in erotic nineties, so it's going to come out soon. And um, you know, one thing that struck me watching that movie over the past few months, a movie I've seen twenty five times over the years, sure. is that it just made me really sad that there are movies, there are no movies being made just about adult people meeting each other and like having a relationship. And like, that feels like more of a loss even than the fact that there's no sex. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, But I I do want to give just a little bit of context on both these films, just so we can kind of dive in and be able to kind of deconstruct them together. Um, The mysterious Catherine Tremell, played by Sharon Stone, is a beautiful crime novelist, becomes a suspect when she's linked to the brutal death of a rock star investigated by homicide detective Nick Curran, played by Michael Douglas. Catherine seduces him into an intense relationship. Meanwhile, the murder case becomes increasingly complicated with more seemingly connected deaths occur and Nick's psychologist and lover, Beth Gardner, played by Jean Triplehorn, appears to be another suspect. (laughs) Listen. Emily's face. I didn't write this. This is just no. Gold, it's okay. It's okay. That, that's what I, it is. that is all in the movie. Yeah, it is all in the movie. Uh, basically, it opened on March twentieth, nineteen ninety two, against Wayne's World, My Cousin Vinny, and The Lawnmower Man. Uh, it would go on to make three hundred and fifty two million dollars on a forty nine million dollar budget. It's got fifty seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes, sixty three from audiences. And then the other film we're talking about today is Consenting Adults. New homeowners, Richard, played by Kevin Klein, and Priscilla Parker, played by Mary Elizabeth Mastriantonio, befriend neighbors Eddie, played by Kevin Spacey, and Kay Otis, played by Rebecca Miller. But things take a dark turn when Kay is apparently murdered after a tryst with Richard. When circumstantial evidence suggests Richard killed Kay, he loses Priscilla to Eddie. Soon Richard become, uh, comes to believe that the crime was cooked up to frame him, and he scrambles to fill in the blanks of his shattered life. The movie opened on October 16th against Under Siege, Last of the Mohicans, Candyman, and The Mighty Ducks. It would go yeah. on to make $21 million on an $18 million budget. Imagine going to the theater and being like, do I want to see <laughs> consenting adults or mighty ducks? That feels like a <laughs> it's a real. Yeah. I mean, who knows? It's a toss up. I, you know, the thing that hit me about both of these films, you know, um, basic instinct, which. So both of these films are made by, I guess you, I don't want, I don't know that I would say that uh, Alan J. Pakula is an auteur necessarily, but you know, Paul Verhoeven and, and Pakula were, real directors right like these are these are sort of you know big guys with you know really deep not even just budgets but like looking at the below the line on these movies you got Jan de Bont shooting basic instinct who obviously would go on to have a career of his own he had shot a bunch of Verhoeven's films and then consenting adults you have you know Stephen Goldblatt and Carol Spire and like all these really talented people um which just goes to show that there was a time when this genre also attracted real talent do you know what i mean like people that were like really interested well pakula actually was even coming off of like this huge hit which is another movie in this genre um presumed innocent um Mm -hmm. which is about the sexy co-worker from hell (laughs) and um that but that was 1990 i think and that that was like a massive blockbuster so it wasn't even just that he had this legacy of all the president's men and these Mm -hmm. 70s movies you know he was a hot director at the time totally and he follows up Consenting Adults with Pelican Brief, if I'm not mistaken, as well. So, like, you know, which is, you know, the Grisham was its own genre thing in the 90s also. It's just, it, it is sort of fascinating to see top-tier people. I mean, these casts, I mean, say what you will about Kevin Spacey. Uh, you know, I love Kevin Klein. I love Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. I think that Michael Douglas can be great. I think Sharon Stone, and I can only imagine you do a whole, you know, uh, unpacking of Sharon Stone in the 90s and what, sort of Hollywood quite frankly did to her rather than like letting her you know 
be a good actor. They force her into all these kind of sexy roles. Um, but I guess I want to sort of, I, I want to unpack that with you for a second, Karina, in terms of, you know, the Sharon Stone effect. She kind of comes into Basic Instinct, you know, I don't want to say late in her career, but we all know how women are treated. That was the, in the perception. Industry, so, yeah, that was definitely the perception is that she had been, you know, quote unquote, kicking around forever. Um, yeah. You know, she had been, made a lot of things that, you know, have now been forgotten. She was in like a remake of Blood and Sand. She played the Sybil Shepherd character in Irreconcilable Differences, um, which is basically about Polly Platt and Peter Bogdanovich's divorce. Um, uh, cool. But she kind of like didn't really have a career until Total Recall. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, basically Verhoeven cast her in that and so he she was on his radar for basic instinct but he still made her audition like a shit ton of times for basic instinct and seems like he kind of emotionally manipulated her through that process not just on set but even just getting the part and she had to kind of learn how to give as good as she got in terms of working with him it makes i mean michael douglas also was you know he put her through the paces too but sorry yeah Uh, i'm gonna say it makes sense that verhoven kind of broke her through because the thing that she does so well that i think nobody quite tapped into as well is she plays what i guess i call sincere satire you're never sure if what she's doing is a joke or real and it's somehow both simultaneously and like basic instinct is obviously the height of that and then i feel like people took from that well she's a sex symbol and i mean she's very sexy but like they missed that she can be kind of arch in a way that I think Verhoeven tapped into. Totally. And I mean, I, we can have this conversation about whether or not Basic Instinct is good, whether or not the way it was perceived is the correct way to perceive it. But people definitely perceived it as like a very serious erotic film and didn't kind of perceive it the way I think it is better perceived, which is as sort of a satire on like erotic seriousness um, and is, you know, definitely making commentary about men like the man that Michael Douglas is playing. I I absolutely agree with you watching it this time. I mean, I'll be honest. I have not watched basic instinct in quite some time. It was a rite of passage for every teenage boy in the nineties to watch basic instinct. So I definitely saw it um, and, and took away nothing of what you just said from it. Obviously as a teenage boy, I was like, there's hot naked women. That's really I mean, all that I need. Most film critics didn't. <laughs> yes take away yeah. anything but this idea of like like who is this sexual temptress it but watching it this time i really and again if you have any sort of acknowledgement of verhoven as a filmmaker who is a very metatextual filmmaker who is his stuff is you know bordering on parody sometimes um certainly you know starship troopers is this kind of parody of of you know uh war films and and propaganda and what have you but you, if you watch this film through the lens of a kind of him kind of taking the piss out of film noir as well, and sort of really kind of playing within that sandbox, um, the only person that, that I feel like is not in that movie is Michael Douglas. Like, I don't <laughs> think that Michael Douglas has tapped into that at all. Well, yeah, I think that one of the things that's really interesting about the two performances is that Michael Douglas should be considered the villain on one level, um, because mm-hmm. everything he does is toxic in this film. Um, but he's in, he's incapable of playing a character that he doesn't think is a hero, whereas like Sharon Stone is actually the villain, is actually the killer, but you love her like you just want to spend the whole movie with her and she's playing the character like she doesn't care if you think she's the hero or not. Yeah, I mean, she's really having I mean, 
there's been much said about how she chased this role and how she felt like she was born to play this role. And, and she really does get this role, right? Like she is, it, it's a star making performance. I don't think this movie makes the money that it makes, despite all of the A-list talent that Michael Douglas and Verhoeven were chasing at the time, you know, the, the, the Michelle Pfeiffer's of the world, the Demi Moore's of the world. I mean, I think that they all would have been great. I'm, this isn't a, I'm not slagging them, but I do feel like this movie is that weird chemical equation of Michael Douglas with this quote unquote unknown actress. Um, you know, Douglas is also sort of at this interesting sort of, you know, inflection point in his career. I mean, he's obviously coming off War of the Roses, Black Rain. Um, you know, after this, this is sort of, and I kind of, he is in a lot of ways, the kind of poster child of erotic 80s and 90s, right? He has this kind of skeezy everyman thing. I, I really, I can, can you explain it to me? I don't know what it is about <laughs> Michael Douglas that made him into this sex symbol. Yeah, I mean, I don't find him attractive and like, but maybe it's just my age because, you know, I was seven years old when Fatal Attraction came out. So for me, he was always like an old guy. Um, but you know, I, I think skeezy every man is is kind of what it is, except at the time, I just like people did not write about him as though they perceived him as sleazy. They didn't write about him as though they perceived he was his characters were wrong, except a little bit in, in falling down. You know, falling down was a, sort of a more controversial situation where some people were like, he's right and he's me. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of people were like, um, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> So, um, but the thing is, is that I think he's kind of always playing the character from falling down, except that sometimes you're supposed to want to fuck him. (laughs) Well, I mean, he definitely thinks the world wants to fuck him. Michael Douglas Mm -hmm. as a human, I believe that to be true in terms of like the way he kind of talks. He he really did drink the Kool-Aid in terms of how he was painted. But I do feel like this movie... I mean, Disclosure is the last time he's quote-unquote sexy guy. Yeah, and, and I'm actually like, writing that episode right now. <laughs> oh, okay, great. <laughs> um, I can't wait to hear it because that movie is bonkers. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's it's an interesting kind of moment when like this is this is sort of the symbiosis of all of it, right, in terms of the, the sexualization of Michael Douglas. Um, and yet he had it in his contract that there was certain ways that Verhoeven couldn't shoot him, you know, like he yep. refused to be shot full frontal, but he, you know, he's fine with like the butt shot. Um, whereas Sharon Stone didn't have any of that power, obviously. Yeah. I do. He also like, had to wear lifts. Uh, <laughs> I do wonder, uh, there are so many movies where the plot is Michael Douglas meets a hot woman and loses his mind. And like, it's not just the erotic thriller genre. It's like romancing the stone. It's mm-hmm. like, it's, um, you know, uh, or the, the, War of the Roses is that too. And like, I watched this with my wife and it's the first time she's ever seen it. And she mm-hmm. was like, to make this movie work, you have to have a guy who believably seems like he thinks like, meeting a hot enough woman would like make him allergic or something like he would combust and like it's his performance is so unhinged but i think he thinks he's being like realistic it's very strange agree with you i mean that's another that's another aspect of the alchemy of this movie which is like the things that happen in fatal attraction like maybe up to the point of the bunny are all things that could conceivably happen in somebody's life. Whereas nothing that happens in basic instinct could conceivably happen in anyone's life unless it's like 
things have really gone off the rails, you know? And so that's that's a big shift that I cite in terms of these movies where it's like the things that were scary about Hand the Rocks a Cradle and Single White Female is that they're based on situations that are familiar to people's real lives. But those then things kind of take this turn with basic instincts. Well, I mean, I, so, yeah, so please, Barry. I just, I mean, we're going to touch on this later, but I think that it is the queering of the genre. I think it is very much like, this is a movie about America's fears about queer people in a lot of ways. And like, I'm fascinated by the way that plays out, but we'll, we'll talk about that a lot. I'm sure. So. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I, I feel like in terms of the believability factor that you were referring to, I, I do wonder if it's, you know, the Joe Esther has component of this is sort of something that needs to obviously be unpacked a little bit. I mean, he writes this movie notoriously in 15 days or something like that. Um, he gets paid $3 million, which was, you know, the most a screenwriter had been paid up until that point or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Just stop me if I'm if I'm. No, I mean he. I can't. I can't remember the number, but he was basically like Shane Black had sold, I think, the Lost Boy Scout yeah. and had like broken Esther Hall's record for <laughs> being the highest paid uh, screenwriter, and so he's like, I got to top it. I got to get my record back, and so he he basically wrote like the same movie he always writes, but this time he kind of flipped the genders a little. So instead mm-hmm. of it being like a woman falling for a male killer, it was the other way around. <laughs> and three million dollars <laughs> later <laughs> i mean i just think it's hilarious that this might be the last time that there was like a screenwriting duel to get paid the most amount of money <laughs> because like that seems to have gone the gone away but but i do think that it it sort of this is again kind of you know he follows it up with showgirls and then jade and and sort of there's these increasing basically everyone sort of is like we get the formula and we're not really interested in watching these anymore it's well seems. actually in between in basic Danun, Showgirls and Jade is Sliver, oh, right. which is a movie I, I like quite a bit. Um, I think I actually like it a lot better than Basic Instinct. But okay. um, I, in both that film and Basic Instinct, I think there is kind of a productive war between the movie that Joe Esther Haas thinks he wrote and mm-hmm. the movie that the director makes. It's Philip Noyce that does Sliver, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Sliver rules. I, I, I haven't seen Sliver in a long time. Um, I think there is a thing in this subgenre, and by that I sort of mean adult thrillers about relationships. I don't necessarily just mean erotic thrillers that like mm-hmm. I sort of first noticed in Gone Girl, which has a lot of erotic thriller meat in it. That is basically the director, the screenwriter, and both of the leads think they're making four different movies. And somehow those four <laughs> movies all talk to each other when it doesn't work. As in consenting adults, it's a mess. But when it does work, like it does, I would argue, in Basic Instinct or in Sliver or in um, Gone Girl, like there's something beautiful that captures the tension of relationships between men and women in a way that like becomes almost metatextual. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. So I, I do feel like with Basic Instinct, this movie is obviously this this colossal success um it was a, a whole like mpaa situation too which i'm sure these are things that you talk about in, in your mini series as well crane in terms of how um this sort of for lack of a better word puritanical uh you know guild or whatever you want to call it that looks at these films and i guess verhoven shot many many angles of these sex scenes so that he could essentially be able to trim away and be able i guess it was there was something like 20 or 30 times that he sent it to the mpaa in order to get it past them yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that's important to note is that, like, you can't even see the R-rated version of this movie now unless you really try. 
Um, that like the NC-17 rated version has become the default. So I had to like buy a VHS to basically understand like what was cut. Um, so ultimately the problem was that like in the NC-17 version, it's pretty clear that he goes down on her. And in the R-rated version, he like kisses her stomach, and she has an orgasm. Cool, because that that's happens. A, that's <laughs> a point. That's a point you make in the episode about this show so beautifully, which is so often the ways that these things are policed are based around like if women have pleasure, that's considered outre. Yep. But if a man has pleasure, well, that's of course just normal. So yep. Sharon Stone, we, us seeing her vagina is you know. Because it's aimed at men, ostensibly, is like better than you know than him going down on her, which I find fascinating and worrying. Yeah, <laughs> not great. It's not great. It, well, it, actually, it, like it to is... talk about Sliver just one more yeah. time. Um, yes. That movie also had to had a, like one of these exact same kinds of fights with the MPAA, and there was an LA Times story where there like an, an anonymous source, probably Robert Evans, um, said you know there, the problem was that the sex scenes were too unconventional. And like the sex scenes in Sliver, like often she's on top. Oh, sure. Crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's what I think is also interesting as well is the NC 17 rating was created not necessarily in a, in a uh, malicious sense where right? they were really just trying to create another category so that these films could exist somewhere between an R-rated film and, and I guess what you would consider pornography, whatever you want to call that. I think it's interesting that it became this scarlet letter, right? Like no movie wanted the NC-17 rating for, for all intents and purposes because it would kill your theater box office, for lack of a better way of putting it. But they didn't try. So right. um, the, the X rating was already box office poison. And that's why they created the NC-17 because they're like, well, we'll just have to call it something else. Right. Um, because pornography has started using the X rating, and that's all anybody can think of. But mm -hmm. the only movie released with the NC-17 that like was sort of a test case was Henry in June, mm -hmm. which is a, this forgotten Philip Kaufman movie about Henry Miller. Um, and it was released on 600 screens, didn't make enough money to expand. And so there was no wide – that was in 1990. There was no wide-release NC-17 movie until Showgirls in 1995, and that was also a big failure. So basically the industry didn't try. Right. It, it, it does feel like it became a rating that was fine to have on home video. And it was lucrative of, to have on home yes. video. Yes. It was – that's so. like the, the double dipping. You know, it's mm – -hmm. You can see the movie in theaters as an R, and then you have an incentive to buy or rent it later because you can see more. Yeah, I do. It, I yeah, do sorry. wonder, like, if they, sh if this is obviously a hypothetical that we can never prove, but if they had pushed Basic Instinct, which clearly there was a lot of interest in, and a lot of people wanted to see, if they had tried an NC seventeen on that, if that would have been successful. But like, obviously, we can never know. But it does yeah. feel like it would have taken that kind of push. Well, this this comes sort of back to you know Michael Douglas's perception of this film as well, right? Like part of the reason he's been very clear, or at least he was at the time, uh, he was very worried about it not being two A-list actors. I think his quote was, "I need someone to share the risks of this movie. I don't want to be up there all by myself. There's going to be a lot of shit flying around." Like I, <laughs> like I, <laughs> he didn't even he wasn't even talking about Babylon. <laughs> 
Oh no. Uh oh. <laughs> uh, I, I I do think that it's interesting that he thought he needed some sort of protection from this film, right? Like it, he he really believed that this film's the the audacity and this sort of over the topness of it was somehow going to be damaging to his career, um, which ultimately it obviously was not. But but I just you know the the list of people that he suggested apparently you know Julia Roberts, Meg Ryan, Michelle Pfeiffer, who also spoke out about of how that you know she's looked back and said like I just she's just not going to do that type of nudity she's just that's just not something that she wants to do um but i just i do think it's interesting that there's sort of this uh he's even going into it with this weird kind of perception of how this movie's going to be um perceived so an nc-17 would have just i think you know doubled down on that it was also just like it was really difficult to guarantee that you were going to be able to do a wide release with an NC-17 just because of, of this, the different theater chains policies. Mm-hmm. And and this is actually still an issue. Um, a lot of theater chains that are in malls have um, like a, a thing in their lease that says that you cannot show pornography. And a lot of people um, can interpret that to include NC-17 films. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. I, I'm thinking about like uh, this is a, a lot of these films I feel like when you have an unknown and this i'm arguing with michael douglas now this who is obviously on the show but like when you have an unknown uh woman in the lead there is a quality to it of like oh my god who is this person will i ruin my life for them as opposed to all of the people michael douglas wanted save for maybe michelle pfeiffer would have been disastrous in this movie like julia roberts in that part is just the worst idea i've ever heard but like Like, I get why he thought that, but at the same time, like, having an unknown gives this movie a kind of secret spark. And not just because Sharon Stone is giving an amazing performance, but... The only person that I feel, and again, from what I read online, uh, that might have made some sense was Linda Fiorentino, who was someone that I guess uh, Verhoeven would ultimately... Or she'd be in Jade a few years later. Mm -hmm. um, And that's sort of post-Last Seduction, and this would have been pre-Last Seduction. There's a part of me that feels like her energy might have made sense. There is sort of that acknowledgement and understanding of the film that she's in that I think she might have been interesting, but that's the only person. But again, she would have been an unknown too. So did you read her quote about why Verhoeven didn't cast her? No. I guess like she was talking to him and he wanted her to play the Gene Triplehorn part and she was like, no, I want the lead. Mm. And he like stood up and like bent over her and said, Linda, if you need to be on top of a man hanging down. And with you there'd be nothing hanging down. Cool. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, seems like yeah. a prince of a guy. <laughs> seems, seems like this must have been uh, a joy to make, which feels like a good uh, a good segue to. I feel like there's been lots of talk about what happened with the legs uncrossing thing, which I'm sure you read about as well, Karina. In terms of just, you know, he says that that he spoke. Uh, Ferovin says that he spoke with Sharon Stone about it previously. She said she had no idea that it was going to happen. I don't. I don't want to say it's a he said she said whatever. Um, but I'll just say this: um, that whole interrogation sequence, that whole scene, is beyond iconic at this point. Like it. It has so right, wrong, who did what, and all of that. Um, looking at it, just sort of you know in a vacuum, it's a pretty unbelievable scene and I, I i'm not i'm not trying to take a, a stance on it in terms of whether it's misogynistic or not i think it is um i think it's very male gazy i don't mean to suggest that it's not but just the second that they walked into that interrogation room i felt like i was like everyone is 
it's I was in a meme. Like I felt like <laughs> I was just inside this moment, like just the lighting, the way it's shot, all that. It, it's it's it is masterful at doing what it's trying to do, I guess is what I'm getting at. I think the second you have Wayne Knight in a scene with an attractive woman, it automatically has the male gaze. And I can't explain that, but I just I think it's true. Yeah. Speaking of Wayne Knight, well, apparently uh, Spielberg, when he saw it, that was when he knew he wanted uh, to cast him as uh, as Nedry in Jurassic Park. He was the so first funny. role cast. It is really funny to think of Wayne Knight as the embodiment of the like unpleasant male gaze. Like It's like the male gaze you don't want. A sweaty Wayne Knight looking at you? Yeah, yeah no. I, I mean, I, I'm sure somebody out there loves the way Wayne Knight looks, but, but uh, yeah, I don't want to be lookist, but. It's it's pretty unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, I think it, that yeah. just, that's just how he's used often. It's yeah. just like, and like, he plays it well. So like, congrats to you, Wayne Knight, if you're <laughs> listening. He's great. I, I do want to uh, talk for just a quick second about, so there was an interview with um, Cassandra Peterson, who plays Elvira, Elvira yeah. who was dating the actor from the first sex scene <laughs> um, that gets stabbed with the ice pick. And apparently he had like these blood packs on, so they would burst, but the ice pick kept going through the blood packs. And so actually hitting actually, him. Yeah. Actually <laughs> yeah Sharon Stone just... writes about that in her book too. I, I mean, do what you got to do for your art. I love that. he, And so his screaming is his actual screaming, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I think there's a lot of stuff in this film that is great. I don't think the script is one of them. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think the script is kind of hacky, but I mean, did what what do you think, Emily? I mean, you're saying a Joe Esterhaus script is hacky? That's <laughs> what? Yeah, I, I don't know. All of the pleasures I find in this film, and I do think there are considerable pleasures to be found in it, sure. provided one can sort of write off the ways in which Sharon Stone was treated, which I do struggle with, you know. Yep, absolutely. Um, but... The direction of it, her performance, those are the sort of the two elements I I keep coming back to. Like, they have nothing to do with the script. Like, when this movie tries to tell a story, it just, it makes no sense. It's just sort of like, like, you know, uh, it sort of drifts off into nothing. It has absolutely no understanding of, like, I was going to say how bisexuality works, but I think it just doesn't have an understanding of how, like, human sexuality works. Or attraction. Yeah, it's 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 a bad script, but like somehow a great like I don't want to say great movie, but somehow a, a very An entertaining, entertaining movie, movie yeah. that like mm-hmm. I could watch a billion times, you know. I, so, Karina, in terms of this oeuvre, in terms of this kind of what this film falls into, at least within the eighties and nineties, I, I, I do feel like they try to be twisty and turny, and they try to kind of catch you off guard. And I do wonder if back in the day when they were released, they might've seemed a little bit more convincing in that regard. Like, is this just an an aging thing? Have they just aged poorly? I don't know. I mean, I, I, from reading reviews, I got the sense that critics were also a little confused as to what was going on plot wise. Like the whole thing with like the red herring with Jane Triple Torn and like, and you know, and then, I mean, like Verhoeven gave this like really confusing quote where he's like trying to be like, no, I know that the Michael Douglas character is a bad guy because, you know, like he kills the woman he loves and it's like, he loves Jane Triplehorn. Doesn't seem um, Yeah, no. Um, and so I, yeah, I think that at some point it feels like they're sort of pastiching together elements, like just to kind of keep the movie going a little bit longer. Um, I but, fully agree. But I, I'm not that worried about that because honestly, like most Hollywood movies that have any kind of action plot in them at some point they lose me. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's for me, what's kind of worse is like the way people talk to each other. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it's really fun and funny, but it never feels like they're real people. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's a pretty abusive movie, all things considered. I mean, I feel like everyone's kind of abusing everyone in this film. Um, it's a mean-spirited movie, uh, or at least the script is. And I feel like the performances are just all kind of really dialed up to sort of dull that feeling that you've got as you're watching it. Um, Michael Douglas's character in particular just seems pretty loathsome. I mean, just very kind of... It's a terrible person. He's a, a terrible, terrible person. Like, I feel like... Any Michael Douglas movie worth its salt has a very low view of humanity. And it just kind of cuts across genre. Like, I feel like the Ant-Man movies kind of have a low view of humanity. Like, like Michael Douglas yeah. as a screen presence. Well, it's a very from... low perspective from the Ant. <laughs> also that I don't know. I've never seen an Ant-Man movie. I have no idea what they're like. They're, they do get small. They do get small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, the, I, I think that like there is this inherent cynicism to Michael Douglas's screen persona that like infects everything around him in a way that becomes really hard to take. But like in the 80s, you know, in the era of Reagan and then in the, the early 90s leading into sort of the Clinton era, like there is this element of, oh, we have that kind of cynicism of greed and everybody is just sure. in it for themselves and everybody wants as much as they can get. And like Michael Douglas is a perfect avatar of that. For some reason. I don't know. I don't think well, he's I, actually I, that way. I think it's funny that you say that because I actually just recently, so I mentioned I, I went to see uh, Wonder Boys relatively recently. And then I actually just, apropos of kind of nothing, I rewatched Traffic for the first time since 2000. And it does feel like at a certain point, he does turn a page and tries to be your dad. <laughs> like he, it, it, and it's, to, you know, with, with varying degrees of success, I, I think that, I think he's actually a little miscast in Traffic. But I think um, in Wonder Boys, I do actually think he's he's good in that movie. And I think that he does, that's the least cynical movie he's done. But to your point, Emily, 95% of his filmography is cynicism. So, I mean, yeah. it's it's pretty crazy. I wonder yeah. if the turning point is uh, the American president. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Which I, I would argue he's a little miscast. <laughs> like, I, I don't, I, you know what I mean? It's like, not I, taking advantage of his essential Michael Douglasness. He's not. He's just not. And there's also just like, I don't know. He, he, I don't know. He's just not a, he's not a Sorkin guy. It doesn't make it. I, it's, it's weird. I mean, he broke through on this show streets of San Francisco, which I've sure. seen like all of two episodes of, so I'm not mm -hmm. an expert, but he's very much in that. Like the whole premise is what if a cop was kind of a dick and it's like, <laughs> sure, yeah. great. What a stretch. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, it's, I, I will say though, to this script's uh, credit, um, it moves quickly. Like, I do think that this movie knows, I mean, if we're looking at sort of the screenwriting 101 of it all in terms of the actual bearing walls of how it moves, I think within this genre, it understands how quickly it needs to get places. It doesn't sort of take its time. I think the part of the movie that actually, and this refers to sort of what you were talking about earlier, Karina, the movie kind of hits a bit of a lull, kind of end of act two, top of act three, where we're ping-ponging between who the potential killers are. We're there's sort of this red herring going on with, with Gene Triplehorn's character. Um, I want to take a second just to sort of talk about Gene Trebone's character. Talk about this Beth character. This I don't know what this one movie of the of, worst written characters in Hollywood history. It's rough. <laughs> I mean, it's also just like an indictment of mental health as well. I guess right. Like, what is it even? Whenever there's a yeah. therapist or a psychiatrist on the screen, Michael Douglas is screaming at them and telling them they're fucking idiots. <laughs> like it's it's crazy. Yeah. No, I think I think there's definitely like in 
that movie and in Jagged Edge, another Esther Haas movie, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like J- Jagged Edge is kind of the movie that Esther Haas keeps rewriting. Um, you know, there is like this skepticism about psychotherapy and this idea that like um, uh, psychiatry is a fraud. It's a scam. Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what, what Esther has his issue is with mental health or with, with but it seems as though that does, because I do feel <laughs> I like. you might the, have a few. <laughs> I don't know if you know what, what he's up to these days, but. <laughs> I, I, I do think that Jean Troublehorn is, I would argue, doing the best she can with the role. Like, I actually, first of all, I like Jean Troublehorn as an actress. I think yeah. she, I, mean, I loved her on Big Love. I think she's, I think she's, she's can be fantastic. This is the first thing she's ever done. So they basically, like, you know, pull her out of obscurity for all intents and purposes. Um, and it's, it's an awfully written character um, who's, I mean, let's be real, raped basically by michael mm-hmm. douglas um it, it's it's that was also a scene that i think there were some trims to if i'm not mistaken um yeah i mean R-rated. yeah i don't know i mean that scene is like it's very very odd i'm not sure if they anybody making it thought of it as a rape scene mm-hmm. um that cer- it certainly is how it plays out but yeah i feel like when when your partner says no 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 a bunch of times <laughs> I don't know. Feels like that's usually an indication. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, and then in Showgirls, there's a, you know a notoriously awful. You know, not that there isn't awful rape scenes, mm-hmm. but a really, really awful sequence. Um, yeah, I don't know what Verhoeven's trying to unpack with consent, um, but there's something going on in his films. I think actually, Showgirl is is much more coherent about that than yes, oh, yes. it's much clearer. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that, that Gene Triplehorn's character is, I mean, ridiculous in, in more ways than, I mean. Yeah, I mean, look, absurd. I think that there are, like, there have certainly been women over the course of human history who have, um, had a non-consensual sexual encounter sure. and then have continued a relationship with that man. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I don't think that that's, like, just totally crazy. But there's so many things about the way that character behaves and seems to change from scene to scene okay. that just seems to be um, convenient for the story and not based in any kind of organic truth to that character. I I, I laughed at the start of that, which now I feel bad about. But it was because I thought <laughs> you were going to say there have been women across the course of human history who have become obsessed with their much hotter like college roommate. <laughs> Sorority. Certainly that, as well. that is true. Yeah, that is certainly that as well. I'm proof positive. So. <laughs> I just I, I think that it's it is unfortunate, sort of, if you look at her character from thirty thousand feet, that she's you know basically just a pawn that they move around. They don't they don't really give her much, and then on top of all of it, she's sort of um, labeled as quote unquote crazy at a certain point in the film um, when he's comparing. The psychiatrist the- <laughs> is crazy. Yeah, they're comparing the driver's licenses and her, I mean, yeah, anyway. I hate when a mystery that involves like a police investigation mm-hmm. has the qualities of a drawing room mystery where all of the suspects are already there and like sure. encapsulated by the story. Mm-hmm. The fact that Beth is, and obviously the end of this movie leaves ambiguous, you know, her role in everything. But like the fact that Beth is a credible suspect at all just completely beggars belief unless like this takes place on an island that everybody's been sealed off on like just 
the fact that she is, it is San Francisco. Yeah. Oh, it is. This is true. The fact that she's ultimately the person who is, who is, uh, goes down for these crimes is like mm-hmm. just wild, you know, like that, that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and I think that's, we're talking about Esterhaus. I think one of his flaws as a screenwriter is his third acts never make sense, but it's because he doesn't do the character work to do the reveals he needs to do in those third acts. Also, he'd yeah. rather a character, be, like, be dead or incapacitated than, like, you know, face any sort of legal justice, mm-hmm. which I don't know. I mean, with our justice system, maybe that is better, but. <laughs> and, I mean, yeah. But, uh, I'm, I'm sure that's his, I'm sure it's just a commentary on the justice system. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's what we go to Joe Esterhaus for, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I I do think that, I want to talk, about, I mean, we might as well just talk about the end right now, because I, I do want to kind of, uh, I hate the end of this movie <laughs> i hate the last shot it it, it feels i don't want to say arbitrary but it, it really just feels like he thinks it's a cool twist um i'm not even really sure what i'm supposed to take away from it because i don't know if you actually think about it for five seconds you're like wait so why is there a wig and why is there the th- <laughs> like the stuff it's just it doesn't make any sense yeah. so it, it, it you're you almost feel as though I understand why he thinks it's a cool ending, but it's actually a really dumb ending, and it negates the whole movie. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, I don't know if it negates the whole movie. I mean, I think that the problem still lies with the Gene Triblehorn stuff. I think, like, basically, consistently, it's like, she did it. And like he kind of yes. knows she did it, but he still enjoys having sex with her. And you know, she might kill him that night. She might kill him another night. Although, if you see Basic Instinct too, I guess she didn't kill him. She um, didn't kill him. So, I don't know why she chose not to kill Michael Douglas. I would. Um, um, I, but... I do want to talk about how this Bart Simpson keychain is the reason that she gets shot. <laughs> I mean, that's a so pretty perfect. funny Verhovenism. <laughs> yes. I just think it's, I, I think it's incredible. I just, the, the, him, the look on Michael Douglas's face when he pulls the Bart Simpson keychain out of her pocket. And you're just like, first of all, you're a terrible cop. Stop shooting people. Like, why do you keep shooting innocent people? <laughs> um, because that's the, what cops yeah. do. Also, also <laughs> like, I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, that was relevant then in 1992. It's relevant sure. now, you know? It's like, it is pretty funny that Verhoeven's like, I'm going to make this movie about this guy who they call Shooter. It's, so <laughs> it's, it's the worst, <laughs> dumbest nickname. Oh, God. I, so I, I do want to talk about a couple of things I liked, not to just keep clowning on this movie, because I do think that the movie is 
you know, Verhoeven is a good filmmaker, a very good filmmaker yes. in terms of mood and vibe and slickness. This movie looks incredible. I was watching it and I guess it was HD, 4K, whatever it was on, on Paramount Plus, And it looks amazing in 2023. I can only imagine how good it looked, obviously, in 1992. You know, Yon de Bont is a great, obviously, a, a great DP. There's great act. You know, the car chases are amazing. The energy of the camera movements, all that kind of stuff really makes it feel like more of an action movie than it really actually is. Mm. Um, but it really does bring an energy. And I think that propulsiveness um, is one of the reasons why it was so successful. Yeah, it's um, Yeah. I think this movie. I I kind of had a great time with this movie. Like I think I this didn't is dislike a, it. I just yeah. You know. Like I the the problem is it is super easy to sort of mock and make fun of. But like sure. even Michael Douglas, you know, who like you look at his performance in this movie, which is truly unhinged. But then you look at Kevin Klein's performance in Consenting Adults, which not to spoil anything, and you're like, oh, I wish Michael Douglas was here. Like there is a there is a quality to this uh, movie that just yeah. requires. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's so Baroque and it's so over the top. And I feel like what I love about it is it feels like Verhoeven is sort of saying, aren't men dumb? Men oh, yeah. just do dumb things and they're hilarious when they do. And like, it plays so much better as a comedy than a lot of things. And it like that it has that gear is why I, I really enjoy it. Totally. I, I also just think, you know, it's really gory. It's got lots of blood and lots of sex and car chases. Like it's a popcorn movie. So it's understandable why it did as well as it did. And then if you compare it to the sleepiness of consenting adults, you're like, which is yeah. also incoherent. And then it's also like <laughs> right. trying for some kind of like sexual currency. Like it's trying sure. to be outre. Um, and it's but... also trying to sort of, um, the, 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 it's, it's actually letting you ruminate which is bad like because the longer <laughs> that you're thinking about what's going on the less sense it makes whereas at least with basic instinct it's moving like a freight train so you're just like and it's got you know it's got all this shit going on and people are yelling and you know it's like it's, so there's stuff going on whereas you know consenting adults feels like a chamber piece in comparison to it like it's it's but yeah i i so to talk about consenting adults um, unless there's anything else we want to talk about, basic instinct. I do. Like, I do yes, want to talk ahead. about. I do want to talk about queerness in this genre yes, more please, generally. Yes. Basic instinct is obviously we should, but I think let's honestly let's do it at the end because oh, I feel let's like there's it. also I feel like consenting adults would be better if everybody also was gay. That's my totally. big. That's my big reading. <laughs> yeah. Your your text to me was amazing, Emily, yeah. as you were watching it. I so I, consenting adults is a movie that, if I'm being completely honest, I'm not sure I knew existed. Um, when I was when I was emailing with you, Karina, you brought up consenting adults. Um, and I watched the trailer and I was like, this is amazing. I can't believe this movie exists. I can't wait to talk with you about it. And as I was watching it, I, I felt myself just being like, the trailer's so much more exciting yeah. than the movie is. So I really like consenting adults okay. up until the thing happens. Yes, yes, um, yes. And then I like the last shot, which I think is a great punchline. Yes. But then everything from when like Kevin <laughs> Klein like gets arrested for Rebecca Miller's murder up until <laughs> the last shot kind of sucks. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It is the first, I want to say 45 minutes to an hour, I guess is what it ends up being, is actually, you know, relatively interesting. You know, everybody's kind of playing in their in their boxes. That everyone makes sense on a casting level, and then it just it just veers right off the rails as soon as 
the the murder stuff starts to happen. First of all, so I love Kevin Klein. Like I think Kevin Klein's great. I uh, he's he's made movies I don't love, but I always like him in it. This is the first time I think I've not enjoyed Kevin Klein in a movie because Kevin Klein as you know. I don't know. I don't even want to say he's cuckolded. As a bored husband who who writes jingles and is lusting for his neighbor, I'm just like I don't. <laughs> I love that the first thing you see in this movie is the worst music ever, and then you just see <laughs> Kevin Klein like conducting it, and you're like, "What's this guy do? Write bad music?" And it's like, yeah. "Yes, that's his that job." That's what he does, yeah. And and when you say it's the first thing, it is literally there are no credits. It is the first thing that happens. I'm a big fan of a movie that just says, "I'm going in," and the credits will show up <laughs> when they show up. But this movie was like, "Why? Why did you choose to do that with this movie?" <laughs> anyway, I. I don't know. I so the Kevin Klein thing to unpack Kevin Klein for a brief moment. Uh, you know, Sophie's Choice is his first film, also an Alan J. Pakula movie. <laughs> um, and he, you know, he's in the big chill, obviously he wins an Oscar for a fish called Wanda. Um, he does Grand Canyon the year before. We also talked about him recently, Emily, in our Chaplin episode when he played Douglas Fairbanks. Um, yeah. one of the highlights of a not great movie. Chaplin. Honestly, I think he was my favorite performance outside, outside of RDJ. Like he was there, you know, there's a scene where he just shouts from the Hollywood sign because that's how sound works. And you're like, that is how sound works. <laughs> it's, it is. I just think that Kevin Klein's career is kind of fascinating. He does Dave in 93. Then he's got like French kiss. Like he just kind of does stuff. Like you get the impression that he's not, not obviously to the same extent as his wife, Phoebe, who basically just decides to not act for, for the, you know, um, he seems kind of choosy. He's like, yeah, I'll do this thing. If it's with someone that I, you know, want to work with again, if it's a Lawrence Kasdan thing, which he clearly, you know, French kiss was, was Lawrence Kasdan. And I think my favorite movie of his might be the ice storm. I think he's great in the ice storm. Um, and, and an underrated film, but yeah, I mean, he's just a guy that I, I like hanging out with, but didn't need to see him and Kevin Spacey plotting, you know, adultery. (laughs) I mean, I just think it's like it's it has like the great sort of high concept of a lot of mm-hmm. these movies, like the one line pitch, like like these two couples like become friends and like consider wife swapping. Sure. But then it just like goes off into this thriller territory. And like, I still don't really understand who actually got murdered. Do you? Well, that's my that was going to be my question to you guys, because <laughs> I, I when when <laughs> when Kevin Spacey frames him for the actual murder of Kay later in the film, I'm like, aren't the police wondering who the first person that was murdered is? And like, and none of that's brought up. The police basically are non-existent in this film, (laughs) but there's an insurance adjuster. (laughs) It's so (laughs) it is, it is to your point, Karina, if this movie had stayed in the lane that it was in for the first half, right. And it became this sort of complicated movie about, um, you know, swinging and and sort of what what could happen there and and by the way you can still have you know thriller elements mixed into this they just go too far like it, totally. it just it, it becomes just absurd yeah i, I mean i i didn't know anything about this movie either when i first watched it and so i thought it was gonna be like oh like neighbor i thought it was gonna be more like the ice storm yes, um yes, yes. but it is not it's <laughs> It, it really does start out like feeling like one of those 70s relationship drama. It feels like kind of feels like a Paul Mazursky movie a little bit sure, in like sure. the early going. And yeah, I liked that vibe. 
you know, there's a scene where 12 Days of Christmas is just performed seemingly in its entirety. And I was like, okay, <laughs> so why not? Hard. And like, but yeah. And then the, t- the turn, it's just, it feels like nobody asked very basic questions about like the movies. And it feels like there's like a cut that's an hour longer that this got sliced out of, except I don't think there is. I don't know what's missing beyond explanations i mean it becomes just straight up illogical at a certain point where you're just like how is he out of jail for as long as he's out of jail i was just gonna say the part where he's like out of jail doing stuff (laughs) he should be in prison he murdered a person (laughs) so it's it's just and then when it when Kevin Klein becomes goes into like commando mode at the end of this film, I was just like, that's why Kevin Klein's not an action movie. He's like, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, you've got Kevin Spacey with an Uzi. It's all just like, <laughs> what is this? Um, but but I do think that the disappointment is that if the whole movie had been on that tact, at least I would have understood where I was. But it gets me really kind of into this character study for the first half that I was you know, pretty compelled by. I, I mean, listen, it's hard to watch Kevin Spacey now and, and take him seriously, especially in this role with this stupid blonde hair and like... Yeah, but he's appropriately sleazy. Correct. You know, like, I, I don't know what it would be like to try to watch a, a Kevin Spacey movie now where he's like, you know, you're supposed to empathize with him. But with this, it's like, it's pretty clear from the beginning that you're supposed to at least be suspicious of him. Yeah. I yeah. this is this is a Kevin Spacey performance that I was like not my stomach was not turned by, which is fine. Sure. Like I you know, obviously we have to grapple with terrible mm-hmm. people who have made art that we enjoy. And like I'm fortunate I don't have a lot of Kevin Spacey performances that I'm like clinging to. But yeah. Sure. When I just when I saw him pop up, I was like, Ugh, Kevin Spacey. And then I was like, Oh, this is this is fine. This is gonna be fine. He's yeah. I, I, I agree. I guess my question to you guys is one of the major hurdles I had was believing that Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio would be remotely attracted to Kevin Spacey. Now, I mean, talk about like pantheon of terribly written female characters. Like, what is she doing? Like, Priscilla, poor Priscilla. Like, why the the whole part of the movie where she like moves and and lets him become her husband does, and raise her child? Does she know anyone else? <laughs> I guess not. I guess she never knew anyone except for her <laughs> husband. And then there's these neighbors who moved to next door. And so now she knows people. And he, at the beginning, is like, I know how you feel about neighbors. And I'm just like, wait, is that just people? Like, that's how you feel about people? It, it, I really, I really felt for Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio in this film. I, I mean, she's, I think she's a great actress. I re- she's been, she's been in many movies and given many performances that I love. And, and, she almost gets me to care about Priscilla in this movie, which is a testament to how good an actor she is. But yeah, I'm like, what are you doing? You, Eddie, the guy who who clearly is a, a a scumbag con artist. You figured that's a good influence for your daughter? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really get it. But yeah, the, the I also don't think the K is well written either. Um, yeah, but I don't know. It's like there's something that Rebecca, maybe it's just like the sort of shock of seeing Rebecca Miller like on true. screen and playing yeah. this part. But there is something where it's like, at least I can go with it. Yeah. Like, at least I'm I'm sort of intrigued by her. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, until she comes back from the dead. But And I will say they do like 
the absolute bare minimum of figuring out a reason that Kevin Klein and her connect, which is that they both have heard music before. <laughs> and like, I'm like, okay, okay, sure, I'll go with that. Right. I guess Kevin Spacey it's... hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Makes so sense. I also feel like I don't know if it's actually Rebecca Miller singing. Let's just say it is. What? A... Why? Why must we hear every song in its entirety in this movie? <laughs> Well, I do wonder if there was like, because I don't know anything about the original script for this film or anything, but I do wonder if it was like they decided to kind of graft two plots together and then like lost a bunch from either side and then they didn't have a long enough movie because like the songs are long, like the scenes, um, like all the scenes like with the guns at the end are like there's way more of that than you need to understand the stakes and what's happening. Um. Yeah, There's also like a lot of footage of Kevin Klein working out. Yeah. So many Running. scenes. Yeah. So many scenes in this movie feel like when the Simpsons would open with the couch gag that went to the Las Vegas thing with the elephants dancing. And they're like, <laughs> oh, they were running short this week. Yeah. Yeah. It it's it it really just feels oddly paced and not thought out particularly well. I also just feel like there's just choices visually that I didn't really understand. I don't know why the Otis's house is entirely red. Like their walls are blood well, red. Because it's, it's hell. Because <laughs> okay. he's the devil. I Okay. Fair. Okay. That makes sense. No. It's just <laughs> so that the subtlety of this like, you know, middle of the road couple walking into a blood red house <laughs> is just like hilarious to me. Also, there's <laughs> going to be blood there. Right, 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 right. I, I also, listen, I, I love Forrest Whitaker. Uh, great actor um d- done pretty dirty in this movie <laughs> like, sure. he yeah. is a plot device obviously his i don't think you want to be but... like the one black person in a movie like also this true. the scene with him and kevin the first scene they have together that is so strangely blocked where he's like sit with me on the stairs <laughs> just, <laughs> just, like, just sit on the stairs while while forrest whitaker barfs up expositional dialogue it's brutal <laughs> let me tell you who i am and why i've come here crazy it's it's nuts um i i i guess the other thing that it made me think of and this is obviously a vastly superior film but it did make me think a little bit of talent to mr ripley in the sense of how sort of i think that what ripley does unbelievably well is building that friendship between um dicky and and ripley and uh gwyneth's character uh marge so like really quickly and believably mm-hmm. um this movie less so <laughs> this movie tries to make you care about this sort of these two couples and their friendship um it, it's just it's too desperate for you to buy into it that it just it never right. really clicked for me i think it just might be re- like relying on this tension that was in the culture at the time of like men are like being so cucked all the time and like sure, you sure. know they just want to like um assert their manhood sure um but I mean, you know, that's not that that's like a great thing, but yeah, I, think no, that it's, that, it's not I think that was like something that people brought to the movie with them. I So here's another question um, that I have for you guys. So by, by all logic, Kevin Klein sleeps with a woman that is not Kay, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. Unless there's some kind of switcheroo, at, like while he's asleep or, well, no, he leaves. He doesn't sleep. So, he yeah, just leaves. Yeah. Like, I know, like my husband, like, his thing was like, does anybody who made this movie know how sex works? Um, and I'm not sure. But 
um it does seem like at some point he would understand that like the woman he thought was going to be in the bed is not sure. the woman in the bed i was gonna say just how eyes work i mean that that's also <laughs> a thing too like I, I would just look at this person and be like you're not the person that i thought you were strange i guess um, it doesn't seem like it's that dark in there either nope <laughs> i guess the way you make it work is that like Kay is in on it which we get some indication and so then he leaves and she gets out of bed and they swap in someone who kind of looks like her and then they and then murder her, her. and they kill her right? somehow implant right. his genetic material yeah uh-huh no. uh-huh uh-huh mm-hmm. sure i, mean, I want to uh, see that part of the movie or yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Kay's like hold on i kept the sperm <laughs> I, it's just it's it's all I don't I guess you this kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier with basic instinct Maybe that's too, what is they that cut like, out. something they cut out like with basic instinct it's kind of moving too quickly for you to really think about it too much this movie is moving too slowly so you are thinking about it and you're just like no no I can't I, I can't get on board with this I like I I your comparison to Mr Ripley is is smart because that movie is framed through the point of view of the interloper. And if this movie was framed through the point of view of Kevin Spacey, I don't think it would be good, but I think it would be interesting because you would be like, what is this guy trying to do? He's trying to like, his end game is to steal this guy's wife and like raise her child. Like that, that's, that's his goal here. But like, he goes to such elaborate lengths to me, but like seeing him rationalize that would be more interesting than like Kevin Klein realizing he's caught in the world's most boring conspiracy. Yeah, it's it, it it also does something that I hate, which feels very tropey. And we talked about it a little bit on the Candyman episode. I kind of hate when our lead is charged with a crime we know they didn't do. Um, so you sort of have this, I mean, truly all your propulsion is just sucked out of the movie because now you're just watching a guy trying to figure out how he was framed. Now, sometimes it works. The Fugitive is an example. We're like, sure, we know he didn't do it and, and like, it works. But In Candyman, because it's a supernatural menace, yes. like she can keep getting accused yes. of crimes she didn't commit and it, the, the, yes. the pit can get deeper. Here, you just can't credibly do that. You can't yeah, exactly. have Kevin Spacey just killing a bunch of people <laughs> and framing Kevin Klein for it. <laughs> yeah, it's... It... But <laughs> also... if this movie was a hit, do you think there would have been a sequel? <laughs> I mean, God, I wish. I, I, I do think, though, so I, I, I want to see if you guys understand this, because I didn't. When, Fran- when Forrest no. Whitaker is explaining <laughs> that Eddie's life insurance policy matches his wife because they loved each other so much, is that a <laughs> thing? Can you say that to an insurance company and be like, listen, I love her to the point of $1.5 million. So hey. if... <laughs> Actually, Phil... And like this is a, this is a thing that married people will understand. Oh, okay, when you cool. get married and you go to the insurance company and you're uh-huh. like, I want to get a life insurance policy, yeah. they make your spouse come in and give. So how much do you think you're worth? And you have to leave the you have to leave the room, and sure, then you sure. come back in. And if your answers match, they're like, you love each other a lot. So it's great. This would actually there be go. a good game show. It would yeah. be a good game show. It would ruin so many marriages, but it would be great to watch. But then they don't have to worry TV. about the insurance. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I, it was amazing to me that Forrest Whitaker had to deliver those lines, right? That he has to literally believably try to convince an audience that that's a thing. Because I mean, it's not al- a thing. He almost turns to the camera and says, it's a living. <laughs> you know, yeah. I also want to talk about how terrible Richard's lawyer is. <laughs> when his lawyer calls him and leaves a voicemail and says, you really should change your plea, man. We got, we got nothing. <laughs> And then just like, <laughs> it's crazy to me. 
everything about this is absurd. Uh, I, yeah. I fucking love that Kay is evidently knows about this plot and then is like, but I have to enter this talent competition. <laughs> well, now she's finally liberated to live her, you know, yeah. life that she's been wanting to live and Kevin Spacey wouldn't let her because of, Ugh. you know, he didn't understand music. It's so, so good. Yeah, um, there's, there's also something about him hearing the talent contest, which happens to be in the town he's in because he's able to drive to said location. Like, this all comes back to sort nobody of... Nobody went I, very far away. <laughs> It's that snow globiness that some of these movies feel yeah. like where there's like only we're only going to play with these players and they're always going to be on the board no matter where we are. And that's kind of absurd. I, oh, I, that I, reminds yeah. me of one thing I wanted to tell you about Sliver, which Wait. is that Megan, the roommate from Felicity, is in it. Ugh. And that's something I had forgotten. That's fantastic. Now, <laughs> I, well, I mean, I was going to watch Sliver, but now I'm definitely watching Sliver. Uh, I do remember Sliver. I mean, I'm trying to. I, it's 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 Billy Baldwin, right? And yeah, uh, I think most Tom people Berger? remember the soundtrack, but don't really remember the movie because it sure. had like this hit soundtrack with the UB40 cover of "Can't Help Falling in Love." Sure. Um, and sense. yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, it's basically like um, she moves. It's based on an Iron Levin novel, but they just like threw out most of the novel. And it's okay. it's like she moves into like this high rise Manhattan apartment building after her divorce, mm-hmm. and. In the building live Billy Baldwin, who has a surveillance lair, and Tom Berenger, who's like a crime novelist, and they're both trying to sleep with her. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. That that was, Phil, you were talking about every uh, boy your age watching mm. Basic Instinct. For whatever reason, that was the, Sliver was the movie that, like, every kid in my junior high was like, this is how adults operate. Yeah. This is the movie that teaches us how adults are. I I think I felt the same way. And it was, uh, I definitely went to see it at age 12 in the movie theater. Nobody seemed to enforce the R rated situation sure. on that one. Um, and there's a joke about Pearl Jam in it. And I was a big Pearl Jam fan in 1992. <laughs> and I just remember like everybody at school being like, that joke about Pearl Jam is really sick. <laughs> yeah, you'd hear something like that. You'd be like, this is I know how, yeah. how adults are. I'm yeah. basically an adult. Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> Yeah, I I do need to rewatch Sliver. I'm sure it's better. First of all, I think Philip Noyce is, is a talented filmmaker. Like I'm sure it's I'm sure it's a good movie. Um but I I do feel like I guess this is more of a question to you Karina and to you, Emily. But like what is the the best post basic instinct? erotic thriller like is it is it sliver i mean that that sort of is in that kind of you know i like sliver a lot um i don't think it's a thriller but i also like indecent proposal more than anyone else seems to like indecent proposal Uh, i like the last seduction although i have a really hard time i mean i watched it again last night and i have a really hard time like truly understanding what we're supposed to take away from it in terms of like all this stuff that was going on about men feeling this fear of women sort of taking their place. Um, Mm. And then after that, it's like the movies that I like after that are are sort of um, different. Um, I do like showgirls, but it's, it's doing something very different than what I think basic instinct is doing. And I, and you know, for me, it's like the greatest is just eyes wide shut. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it, which I think is also doing something very different than yeah. any of these films are doing. I, you know, I, I do think I watched Showgirls relatively recently with two friends who had never seen it before, mm-hmm. um, both women, and could they could not get on its wavelength. 
Um, that's not a judgment. I think that it's just, I think that movie is, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty insane and, and hard to kind of really grapple with because there's a lot of upsetting stuff in it, but then there's also a lot of like almost parody stuff in it. Yeah. It, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. I think it's like it's the only way to really understand it is to understand it as a dry run for Starship Troopers, um, and then sense. and then also to understand it as like Joe Esterhaus thought that what they did with Basic Instinct ruled, sure, and Verhoeven kind of understood that the movie was misunderstood, and so I think that sure. he was um, taking advantage of Esterhaus just wanting to do the same thing but bigger, sure, to do what Verhoeven wanted to do but bigger. Um, so it's, I don't know. I mean, I think like, I mean, you know, you mentioned like the rape scene. I think what a lot of people forget or don't necessarily pay attention to is that the scene that happens right before the rape scene, you there's like a violent gang rape on stage in the context mm-hmm. of the show. Yep. And, you know, I just think that it's it ought to be a stupid point. But I think that for Hoven is saying something about like, the, you know, the sort of the snake eating its own tail of like. Like media can influence real life and real life can influence media. Um, and isn't that terrible? But sure. why are you critiquing me for it when you guys invented it? Yeah, it's kind of the natural born killers thesis statement too, yeah. which is also around sort of at the same time. Um, both very subtle filmmakers for Hoven and, and Oliver Stone. So <laughs> but I but I, I do think just to briefly talk about like I the sex stuff in Showgirls is ludicrous i mean yeah. the 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 infamous pool sex scene yeah. is physically impossible but it's like <laughs> what this is what i'm saying about the tension between verhoven sure. and esther haas right because i'm sure in the script esther haas says she has yeah. an orgasm like a wild animal sure, <laughs> and then sure. verhoven verhoven's like okay elizabeth this is how we're gonna do this i actually <laughs> saw it recently too i went to a private screening that somebody mm-hmm. like rented out the alamo draft house to host and mm-hmm. elizabeth berkeley was there oh that's cool. um and you know, she like she said a few words before the movie and then she stayed and watched it and like you could hear her laughing and like sometimes she'd like call out like the lines with the lines and it was That's a fun. really interesting experience and I, I liked it more in that viewing than I've ever liked it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I liked it when I watched it recently. I, I do think it is a movie that you know, was dinged with everything we were talking about, you know, the NC-17 and and just, yeah. you know, it's kind of what you were talking about too, Emily, of like, you know, filmmaker and writer not on the same page. And when that dissonance doesn't click and, you know, you've got critics, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Kyle McLaughlin also feels like he should have Michael Douglas energy, but somehow he doesn't, which is like this weird yeah. thing about He's him. He's too innocent. He yeah, there's something wholesome about him, even yes. though he looks like he like, you know, <laughs> like has been to like a, a weird sex shop on the outside. He's been in David Lynch movies. Yeah, he's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Did you, Emily, want to talk about the the, the queer angle of, of these two films? First of all, I'm still hung up on the idea of Eyes Wide Shut playing by the rules of a traditional erotic thriller and like around yeah. the midpoint, Tom Cruise like encounters a dead body and has to like beat the rap. Um, no, I, 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 I did want to I did want to shout out Gone Girl, yeah. which I think is plays with a lot of these tropes in interesting ways and could have sort of shown a new breadth of life for the genre, except of course then we stopped making movies not about you yeah. know IP. I mean Deep Water was the last sort of Yeah. Gasp. And technically Gone Girl was IP. Yeah. It was based on a book, but you know what I, I mean. So Deep Water. Yeah, yeah. Um I uh I, I really think 
one of the things that I'm finding as we watch these erotic <clears throat> thrillers, because we're watching a lot of them for this project, is that as a queer person, they kind of make no sense. I'm kind of like, is this <laughs> yeah. just how heterosexuality is? Is that is this what is this like? Because for instance, like obviously Basic Instinct has a very rich queer reading, has a lot of debate and discussion around the, the queer text because the queerness is in the text there in a way that it's not in most of these movies. But Consenting Adults is kind of also about the fear of queerness. Like there is this element of it, and I read queerness very broadly to sort of be like anything outside of the traditional gender sex norms. There is this element of consenting adults that's very much like, well, what if we all had a polyamorous thing? And like that becomes this terrible idea that like if we ever did that, it would result in murder and death and we should just not even think about that. And obviously Basic Instinct has a scene at what appears to be some sort of, of gay club where everybody's like, I, I'm the dancing is amazing. It's worth seeing the movie just for them doing the, the club yeah. scene is amazing. It's great. I, I, it really is. Also, the I lights. love that. I love that Michael Douglas wears a V-neck sweater to this club <laughs> with yes. nothing underneath it. Just yeah. like it's, it's incredible. Yeah. But obviously basic instinct is like very afraid of the idea of queer female sexuality of this idea that like, well, if women can have sex with each other, then they won't need Michael Douglas. And that will be a terrible idea. And like at the time, Basic Instinct, and this is a thing that your episode touches on beautifully about this episode, uh, about this movie, Karina, which is like this idea that at the time there was all this discussion of it where basically Sharon Stone was being read as a man because that was like mm -hmm. the only way people, or Catherine rather, that was the only way people could conceive of a female character being that sexually forward. And like you uncovered some reviews that have like, like, like turf logic in them, basically, for lack of a better word. And it's really fascinating the ways in which, you know, at the time there was this huge pushback against basic instinct from various queer groups, but then also there was this group of predominantly uh, female and lesbian critics reading it as like, oh no, this is like kind of a fun, like campy, like, like story of like getting, uh, you know, getting one over on all the guys. And I had not seen this movie in many years and I kind of went into it with this fear of like, is this going to be queer phobic on some level? Because at the end of every episode, I have to rank the movie's queer phobia because that's a thing I've said. I want to, yeah, movie, okay, you said it. I don't want to make it. I said it. I, I said it. I said it. Yeah. <laughs> this movie is going to break my scale because I have no idea how to like. <laughs> it's just like it's spinning around yeah, and around yeah, and around. Yeah. yeah. But it's, I'm just like this basic instinct is simultaneously textually about fear of queer women's sexuality but subtextually about how it's kind of hot but then even more subtextually about how well yeah of course we should not have men around if like women could just like fuck each other that would solve all of their problems and i'm like you know what i kind of agree <laughs> on every level <laughs> yeah and, and that, that yeah sorry please just um that thing that you were saying emily of um like the only way you could understand a woman behaving this way is to say that like, well, she's the character is like really a man or she's like mm -hmm. a man in a woman's body. This continues in, in further movies that I've been talking about. I mean, Body of Evidence, which I don't think is a good movie, but it got crazy reviews like where I don't understand where some of these things are coming from. And one very prominent critic was like, well, the sex scenes are inspired by gay porn. And it's like, well, why would you say that? Um, there's absolutely, you see nothing gay in the movie. In fact, there's one scene where, um, Madonna's character outs Franklin Jella's character on the witness stand to save herself. So it's arguably homophobic. Um, but I, it's like the only way that 
it could I like what are you saying is gay about these sex scenes and it just seems to be that it's like she's in control like the you know it and the only way you can understand that is to think of it as being something queer yeah yeah there's this element of these movies that is so much about changing gender roles obviously about women being in the workplace and women you know leaving the home and all of these things and a lot of these movies sort of subtly punish them for that not so subtly in many cases but like there is also this element creeping in across the early 90s especially that is like fear of different forms of sexuality fear even of forms of sexuality that leave room for like heterosexual relationships like bisexuality you know fear of anything that is not conventional vanilla heterosexual monogamy and like i'm i mean uh we watched single white female for a different episode and that is a very queer movie but i'm not sure anybody involved like quite knew it was a queer movie but like that's what that's that's really fascinating to me the way that these movies are so animated by queerness without actually kind of knowing that's what they're doing because that's a lot of early 90s pop culture period by the end of the 90s people are aware queerness exists and are like talking about it more openly obviously people knew it existed before that but and are talking about it more openly and it it is this interesting like undercurrent of a lot of this stuff we're watching a lot of erotic thrillers and i'm 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 sort of wondering karina if you've encountered more of that element of like fear of like any sexuality outside of traditional heterosexual monogamy if that powers like all of these movies or just most of them well i think that's one of the things that powers it um i think the idea that men can't cope with the changes that are happening in the world um, and are trying to reset the clock i think that's a big part of it the other thing that I would say is that I think a lot of these movies are made in the age of AIDS and are um, taking advantage of the fear that AIDS inspires when it comes to sex without ever directly dealing with AIDS at all. And to mm-hmm. and there, you know, there there was a period where, you know, there was sort of equal opportunity fear about AIDS. Like straight people were scared as and you know they were scared that it was going to impact their community as much as it was impacting the queer community mm-hmm. and then there was a, a period um which i'm actually i've been writing about recently where there was a rejection of that um and you know there was like basically among straight people like we don't have to worry anymore and then magic johnson happened and then mm-hmm. you know it was sort of a pendulum going back and forth and so there was this fear but the movies like we're never going to talk about it hollywood movies were never going to directly address it um all you get is philadelphia and <laughs> you That's can't it. there's no way that you can incorporate um the fear of aids which was a real thing for straight people and queer people into a movie that isn't about somebody dying of aids well, it's it's interesting you bring that up because in some of the I'm sure you saw this research as well when you were doing your your basic instinct episode. But you know, Michael Douglas talked about how like one of the reasons he wanted to make this film was to sort of uh, he was afraid that they wouldn't make sex movies anymore, quote unquote, because of you know the AIDS epidemic, and he felt as though it was necessary in order to keep making them. You even have a throwaway line in Basic Instinct where <laughs> I guess his friend is talking about how he had sex with Catherine. He's like, yeah, next time I might have to wear a rubber or something like that, <laughs> and you're just like. I don't know that this is helping the situation necessarily. Um, it, it, it is interesting to see it through that lens, though, because I do wonder whether or not... I mean, the reason erotic movies go away is not what Michael Douglas is talking about. It's because no. you know they're, they're courting teenage boys, basically, and, and families. Well, there's and... lots of reasons, but that's definitely... I would say the primary one is that um, movies become more expensive and need to make more money. Sure. 
there's def- there is definitely this this element in a lot of these movies that is like about these, especially watching them from a 2020s perspective, these changing sexual mores around mm-hmm. consent, around safe sex, around all of these things that at the time are like treated as like, oh my God, I might have to wear a condom. Like is, <laughs> yeah. su- now it feels su- such a, like such a fucking quaint thing to complain about. I agree. I'd want to just like sit down and have a conversation with old Michael Douglas. Cause I feel like he just <laughs> say some shit. I feel oh, like that yeah, would I don't be know. I mean, did fun. you see like the variety interview with Goldie Hawn this week? Like, it seems like she was like about to like really like unload on a few topics and that maybe somebody else was in the room and was like, um, you know, mom or Goldie or whoever, you know, like maybe pull it back. Yeah, I, I do. You know, talking about the, 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 the queerness or what have you, I feel like I'd be remiss to not say that the casting of Kevin Spacey in Consenting Adults is a choice to some degree, right? Like he's not an overtly masculine character, despite the fact that or, or actor or person. So despite the fact that there does seem to be sort of this bravado about the way that he plays Eddie, he doesn't, you know, adhere to a strict kind of alpha male thing. I think that's part yeah. of it too, wouldn't you say, Emily? And like Kevin Klein being a man who's in a uh, uh, famously heterosexual relationship in real life. Oh, famously heterosexual. Famously? <laughs> <laughs> He's in a heterosexual relationship yes. and has been yes. for many years is what I'm trying to say. Sure. Like, uh, but has also, you know, done things like in and out. He has, he has mm-hmm. this sort of cosmopolitan effete quality to him occasionally play queer characters so there is this like weird bubbling sexual tension within the movie and genuinely i think this movie's so much better if those two fall in love and that powers everything that happens but the movie won't even go there in the subtext and that ultimately just kind of fucking tanks well you emily texted me halfway through and was like this would be so much better if it was just kevin klein and kevin spacey there's even like the it's it's such a silly moment in the movie when uh, this 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 ridiculous they're gonna swap wives in the middle of the night when they're asleep because <laughs> then they won't notice or some shit it makes no sense so in the middle of the night they get up and sneak out of each other's houses and they pass each other like in front of their garages and i you half expect them to like high five each other or yeah. something it's <laughs> such a silly stupid moment that i just don't even feel like the actors really even bought but i don't know i don't know i mean i kind of wonder like i don't know part of me is just like why maybe it has to become a murder movie so that they won't have sex with each other like if it if it just continued to be a sex movie like you know all kinds of combinations could happen right right i was a more interesting movie i was thinking about um how uh uh the basic instinct is about the criminal justice system which joe esterhaus is always interested in talking about (laughs) this movie also has like weird commentary on the legal system oh yeah so I went and looked up the screenwriter, and he has written a whole bunch of fucking uh, erotic thrillers that make no sense, just <laughs> judging from the handful I've seen. But he has since gone on to become mm. like a leading expert in the debate against creation science and is like now defending Perfect. like evolution. And I'm just like, what a weird, like, what a weird pivot. He writes Runaway wow. Jury, can't get any more work. He's like, okay. I'm going to destroy creation from <laughs> here on out. I mean, yeah. there's Why worse not? things he could have pivoted to it's yeah. true no it's absolutely true I, I i think that the kevin spacey casting and we talked about kevin spacey previously in our uh glenn gary glenn ross episode um he's very good in that movie um he makes sense in that movie um and i i don't even want to say he doesn't make sense in this movie because to what we just said it does add a flavor of something slightly outside the norm i think that had it been cast with i don't know any number of other actors at the time that were sort of more i mean 
Alec Baldwin comes to mind, like any number of sort of like alpha male type mm -hmm. characters. Um, I don't think it becomes even less interesting, which is impressive. <laughs> I just thought about Wayne Knight. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, perfect. I would watch. <laughs> <laughs> might, might be more convincing with the Uzi. <laughs> yeah, Kevin Spacey with an Uzi or something is this. It's... <laughs> I feel like I feel like the 90s is full of these movies that are like a new couple moved in next door. Let's find out what's up with them. And like yes. it's it's always like I mean Arlington Road is the one I'm thinking of which is sure. much for 99 where it's like they're terrorists. But it's always like <laughs> the new neighbors are fucking scary. We'd better move to the countryside, which is the last shot of Right, the, 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 be the, the best line. joke, yeah, yeah, where it's like the camera moves out, they have no neighbors. And that, it keeps pulling out. I, I expected them to go to space at a certain point. Like, it's so wild. Yeah, it pulls it's back. Insane. They're on an asteroid <laughs> It's, yeah, I mean, it was, but it's a good joke. Uh, it works. I, I think that... There's a good movie somewhere in this movie, and I think it's just modulation. I think that the second half is just dialed way too crazy for what's happening in the first half of the movie. But I still liked it. Um, <laughs> I'd like to rate these movies before uh, before we go. Um, zero to ninety nine, Karina. Basic Instinct. Where wh what were your thoughts on? Let me let me rephrase this. What were your thoughts on Basic Instinct? Not necessarily in ninety two, but like mm -hmm. back in the day or when you saw it for the first time. And how is it adjusted to sort of present day? I think I like probably first watched it on VHS sometime in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and I probably was watching the R-rated version, but it still sure. seemed, you know, pretty risque to me. Sure. Um, and I probably would have given it like a 95. Um, oh, wow. okay. But like, you know, not not being sort of cognizant of many of the nuances that we've talked about today. Sure. I just was like, you know, like, wow, like this like hot lady wearing cool clothes is like sure. so mean and cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, nowadays I'd probably give it more like a 75. Emily, where, where are you on Basic Instinct? This hot lady wearing cool clothes is so mean and cool is what people say about me often on this show. That's <laughs> uh, true. Isn't that your Twitter bio? It really is. <laughs> it will be now. <laughs> um, the I I think I saw this in like the early 2000s. It was like a thing where I was like, Paul Verhoeven, I know about him because Ain't It Cool News talks about him. Oh, he oh, made boy. Basic Instinct. I'll watch that. And I'm like, I was really like weird about sex stuff because, you know, I heterosexuality made no sense to me. So like I watched, I was probably like 60, 65 this time watching it. I, I had a real blast with it. Like, I don't think it's a good movie, but I think it's a great movie. If that makes sense. Sure. I probably give, I, I genuinely was going to say, I think it's a 75. Like, I think it's just uh, a kind of a three out of four star, just had a blast, had a great time. 90s queer phobia scale. Just textually, I got to give it an eight. Like, it is pretty sure. queer phobic, yeah. but just it's like an eight with a big thumbs up. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, great. This is what this is queer phobic way that I, Emily St. James, queer woman, approve of. So, when I saw this film for the first time, I, I'm pretty convinced it was a VHS copy. It was most likely with a bunch of my friends, which is not the way to watch a movie yeah. like this. It was, it just felt kind of gross. Um, but I think I probably liked it enough. I don't know. I probably would have given it like a 60 or a 65 back then. I, I'm similar to you guys. I'm, I am also at a 75. Like the movie's just, it is fun. It is having fun. It has some problematic stuff, obviously. Um, but just from a filmmaking perspective, I was just like, I'm on for this ride. This movie is fun. 
it's crazy like um you know so in that respect a lot of fun uh consenting adults less so um so yeah. i had not seen consenting adults as i mentioned earlier i didn't know consenting adults existed um up until uh emailing with you uh karina uh i'm at a 30 uh before before this podcast i was around a 30 i think i'm sticking around 30 i mean 35 maybe like i think that uh it's got some interesting stuff in the first half as we mentioned but like it really just careens off the rails and becomes uh, bonkers and not in a particularly fun way but uh, what about you emily where are you on uh, consenting adults i liked it more than final analysis and I'm trying to remember what oh, okay. I gave final analysis. Um, I don't know. I'm going to say a 28. I don't think 28? it's a good movie at all. I But I like, I had fun with some of it. Uh, queer phobia scale, I'm going to give it a five because there's no overt queer phobia, but just all of it is like gay panic subtext. So uh, yeah, that's a five, <laughs> five out of 10. And this time with a big thumbs down where I'm like, no. There should be more. There should be more boys kissing each other. That'd be great. Karina, where are you on consenting adults? You know, I just, I do really like the first half of the movie, and sure. then like the, as I said, you know, the second half of the movie is just sort of disposable garbage. Sure. Um. So it's hard for me. Like I know you you guys have like the fifty is like recommend or not yeah, recommend yeah. line. I mean, I think sure. I'm at forty five, but yeah. I do kind of want to just show people clips from it. <laughs> sure. Yes. It does feel like a movie that could be stumbled upon and film Twitter all of a sudden is like, guys, did you know this movie exists? And then like all of a sudden you see memes from like consenting adults. Like it it, it just feels like a relic of a different time. Yeah, like I if have, the Criterion Channel did like a Pecula yeah, yeah, yes, lineup yes, yes, or something. Yes. I have yeah. I have a friend who makes annual Christmas mixes and he puts in a lot of clips from <laughs> film and TV. And I'm going to recommend he grab it just starts out as a normal conversation and you're like, are they performing 12 days of Christmas? And the <laughs> camera goes outside and they perform the rest of the song. And you're like, sure. Why not? Great. It goes on for so long. It's, it's really incredible. I, anyway, I do want to ask Karina, have you seen final analysis? Is that a movie? That I haven't. Covered? No. Interesting. Okay. I try, actually tried to watch it maybe mm. like six months ago and I fell asleep. Oh um, yeah. Absolutely. So, <laughs> and I just, I haven't gotten around to revisiting it. It is a I, listen. I don't think it's a good movie at all. Um, as when people hear our episode, they'll they'll, mm-hmm. they'll recognize that. I do think though, the the noir pastiche that it's kind of and the whole like Hitchcockian lighthouses and all that kind of stuff. I think I had a little bit more fun with it than I did Consenting Adults because I think Consenting Adults is taking itself surprisingly seriously yeah. uh, when when uh, it shouldn't. Certainly in the in the last half. What is the remake that Sean Young is in of like the sort of 1950s noir? Is it Kiss Before Dying? Yes. yes. Yeah. So I don't know if you guys have seen that, but that movie does like sort of parodic um, Hitchcock as well. And I I don't know if it's good, but I find it very watchable. (laughs) And she plays like a dual role. Oh well, yeah. In this, it's it's uh, it's Kim Basinger and Uma Thurman playing twin sisters. You know nice. that that old chestnut. Uh, it also, I would say though, Emily, that the end of Final Analysis has a little bit of a Basic Instinct ending yeah. of just sort of being like, and you're like, you mean it? Why? Yeah, you mean it makes no sense? And just kind of like, like, yeah. Whatever. But um, Karina, thank you so so much for coming on and talking with us thank um, you guys yeah obviously you your podcast yes please plug uh, away just, yeah. yeah plug are yeah, there anything so yeah, go ahead. 
Um, I have erotic 90s on You Must Remember This. Um, we're going to it's 21 episodes and it's going to be broken down into two segments with the first 14 running um, April, May, June, then a short hiatus. And then I'll come back in the fall with seven more. And so it basically just goes all through the nineties <laughs> with all, all your favorites um, leading up to eyes wide shut, basically. And your, your it, does, podcast, it doesn't sound time consuming at all. Your podcast, <laughs> your podcast is one of my faves and um, you. you you dropped some of the episodes with us. The basic instinct one, especially is one of my favorite ones you've done. I think it's really great. They're uh, both fantastic. Thank you. But yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for people to hear some of them. I mean, all <laughs> of them. Some of them, <laughs> some of them are, some of them are, uh, I think more, yeah, some of them are very exciting. I think, I mean, listen, the, the erotic 80s was fantastic. I have so many friends that just absolutely adored it. And I believe that you're also, there are some films that are screening in LA for oh, some yeah, of I'm doing well. a I'm doing a series with the American Cinematheque. Um, so starting March 28th, every Tuesday, except for when they're doing things like Beyond Fest. Um, but sure. pretty much every Tuesday, they're going to show a film related to that week's episode. So they've only awesome. announced two, and you can buy tickets for them now on March 28th. Um, it's Henry and June, which was the first NC-17 movie. And then the next week, it's Sleeping with the Enemy. I saw that as a kid, too. I remember that. Yeah, that was one of those... Uh... You had a wonderful childhood. <laughs> what a, it was a weird time to be a teenage boy, I guess, in the nineties. <laughs> but, um, but truly, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. And, and you yeah. know, I, I hope that you know people are going to love. Uh, obviously, are going to love this new series, and they can follow you on Twitter as well, yep. uh, and on Instagram. I'm assuming. And, yeah, both the podcast and me are on both places. And thank you especially for introducing us to Consenting Adults, a movie course, I'm glad you're I've so seen. Welcome. You're so welcome, and I, I hope you write the remake where it's just about the two guys having sex and no murder. It's the sequel. I, I, by the way, I mean, I don't think we'd have any problem getting funding for that with the original actors, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, Kevin Spacey might be available. <laughs> he is available. Um, thank you so, so much, Karina. We can't, yeah, I mean, obviously, hope to talk in the future, and it'll be great. Yeah. All right, thank you so thanks. much. Thank Bye. You. Bye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.